This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 6. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to look at it, there's some blue Bibles that are in the uh, chair racks, and you can find Ephesians 5 on page uh, 1244, 1244 of that blue Bible in the, in the chair racks. Now, we are uh, starting in earnest. We've been previewing the last couple of weeks, but we're starting in earnest our study this fall of Ephesians 5 and 6. And so we will be getting into some of the practical details of this letter, uh, as we'll discuss as we go through the encouragements in practical Christian living that Paul gives in the latter part of Ephesians are grounded on the character and the nature of God and the salvation that He has given us freely and graciously through what He has done in Christ. Um, and so it is only in light of what He has done for us that He calls us then to live as followers of, of His. So let's read Ephesians chapter one verses one to uh, Ephesians chapter five verses one to six. I'll invite you to stand if you're able. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Who do you um? Who do you want to be like? Ever had somebody in your life that you want to that, that you particularly admired that you uh, that you tended to imitate? We all like to try on different styles. Growing up, I remember specifically mimicking the pitching motions of some of the pitchers on the, on the Phillies and, and practicing them in the backyard. They each had, you know, everybody has like a little distinctive kind of motion when they pitch. And I remember mimicking them, imitating them. And my their careers by covering the songs of, uh, of other artists that were originally written and performed by other people. Artists do the same thing. If you've ever been to a major museum, I remember going into... Uh, some you know museums in in, in Paris once and, and and they're just filled with other people who are painting other people's paintings. Right? They're 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 mimicking, they're they're imitating the the great the great masters of the of the art world. If you're in the trades, you will apprentice with a master before you work on your own. If you're a, a business leader, then you try to find mentors in your field who can help you. And there's nothing inherently wrong with doing these things. It's how we, it's how we learn. In fact, the, Greek, the, the teachers of Greek rhetoric and oratory said that for effective learning to happen, you had to have this. Effective learning tended to have three things on which it depended. You had to, you had to have theory, you had to have imitation, and you had to have practice. Right? In other words, you needed to know something, but in order to really be able to do it, you had to imitate someone, and then you needed to put it into practice. You study the master and you imitate him, and you keep doing it until it becomes a part of you. Now, the danger comes not from this impulse to imitate something, but it comes from the fact that we tend to imitate the wrong things, or we imitate 
right things to a wrong degree. Right? Now, imitate the wrong things. For, think of it like this, if you go back to kind of, you know, my childhood. If you're a little leaguer, there are professionals, professional baseball players, whose batting stances you should not mimic. Because they may have ended up like that as a major leaguer, and it's fine and it works for them. But as a little leaguer, if you're a kid, it will lead you down the wrong way. It'll ruin your swing. You won't learn the right things if you try to mimic some particular player's batting stances. Same thing is true in life. Who you imitate makes all the difference. Now, here's how I would summarize what we just read in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. This is how I would summarize it. We are to imitate God and not imitate the idolater because we are loved by a sacrificial Savior. Right? We are to imitate God, that's what we are to do, and not imitate the idolater, that's what we're not to do, because we are loved by a sacrificial Savior, that's why. That's the summary. Now, that's the, the, let's unpack that then for the next couple of minutes, and let's do it in three parts. The same basic kind of parts that we just said in the summary, right? Who to imitate, who not to imitate, and how to do it. You saw it in what we read, right? I'm not hiding any. Who to imitate? Imitate God. Who not to imitate? Don't imitate the idolater. How to do it? As a dearly loved child of the sacrificial Savior. Now, let's take a few minutes with each of those. First, what to imitate, who to imitate. This is the first part of verse 1, and it's about as clearly stated as it can be. What, what do we imitate? Paul says, be imitators of God. So, it's clearly stated. No mistaking it. But what does that mean? Well, to, to imitate, in a general sense, means to closely copy something, to repeat someone's speech, their actions, their, their behavior. And the word that Paul uses here in the original text is that Greek word from which, we, from which we get the English word mimic. But it's, it's different than what we usually mean when we say to mimic someone. Because in, in modern English, most of the time when we say we're mimicking someone, it usually means we're making fun of them. It kind of has a negative connotation. If you say, stop mimicking me, right? That's usually what, that's usually what it means. But to imitate God is different than that, right? In fact, it's exactly the opposite of of copying someone to sort of make fun of them. That's what we typically, when we, see, we hear the word mimic, that's what we often think of. But it's the exact opposite of that. It is, not, it is not to imitate God in order to make fun of Him. What do they say, what do they say about imitation? Imitation is the sincerest form of, of, what? of flattery, right? Sincerest form of flattery. Now, if it is indeed flattery, and it is sincere flattery, it's admiration. That's the, that's the way Paul is using the term here, the reason we would imitate something is driven by our admiration for it. In a very true sense, imitation, we can then say, is an act of worship. We are worshiping that which we imitate because we are admiring it in such a way that we deem it worthy of the supremest form of, of flattery. Well, the reason then that we would imitate God is because there are qualities then that He possesses that are supremely worthy of of imitating certain aspects of his character that we can and we should imitate. Now, the Bible tells us that this is possible, not with every aspect or attribute of God. There are some that, are, that belong wholly and completely to him, but there are aspects of God's character that we can and we ought to, to imitate. We are human beings made uniquely in the image of God, the Bible tells us. And because we're made in His image, there are attributes of Him that we are intended to reflect. Not just that we can reflect, we're intended to reflect. For example, God's justice. 
we're to act justly. Right? God is all wise. We are to act wisely. God is patient, and so should we be. God loves, and so should we. God forgives, and so should we. And it's probably those last two, love and forgiveness, that Paul probably has most clearly in view when he says, be imitators of God. Now, how do I get that? Why do I know that, that love and forgiveness are what most clearly Paul has in view when he says to be imitators of God? Well, you get that from the context of that statement, both the context before and the context after. Now, we didn't read the context before, but verse 1 starts by saying, therefore, which means that he just said something that is important to know if you're going to understand what he's going to say now. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. And the, the therefore takes us back to the end of the last chapter. Remember, the, the paragraph and the chapter breaks in, the, in our translations, they didn't exist in the original manuscripts, and we, we sort of divide up our sermon texts and even like our whole sermon series with these breaks in them. But, the, but it, this is a letter that is intended to be read all the way through. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 depends upon the end of, of chapter 4. And Paul is just flowing right along as he goes into chapter 5 from the end of chapter 4 when he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as in Christ God forgave you. That's the last thing he says. Then chapter 5 verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. So we imitate God by showing people kindness and compassion and by extending forgiveness to them when we're wrong. Just like God in Christ forgave you. That means you should forgive others. Now we see another part of the context when we look after verse 1, we look at verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay? Same thing. So as we, as we see and love God, as we see God loving others, we are to imitate God in that, in that same way. Just like God in Christ loved us with his whole life, sacrificed himself for us, that's how we should love other people. And this happens in big ways and it happens in small ways. And we tend to, to quote, we tend to share the, the stories on, on, you know, on, on social media about the big ways that, that we're, you know, like when someone steps in front of a, of a bullet for someone else, you know, loving them in a sacrificial way. Or when we see Christians extending forgiveness to perpetrators of some act of violence, not condoning the action, but forgiving them. And we, we, we see it in the big ways, and we tend to share those ways, but it's not just in the, in the big ways that we imitate God in love and forgiveness. It's in the small ways, too. Every time a parent sacrifices sleep to help a child, every time an employee stays late after work to help a coworker finish a project, every time a classmate helps a, another classmate with his homework, every time a, a child shares a toy with a, with a friend or a younger sibling, we see it when we forgive an offense or a comment or forgive an, in, an intended slight or forgive someone who takes something from us, whether it's a possession or they take something of our dignity. Every time that happens, we are imitators of God. All right, so what do we imitate? We imitate God. Specifically, we imitate God in showing forgiveness and showing sacrificial love to other people. That's point number one. Now, Paul, somewhat uncomfortably, if we're honest, goes on. He tells us not only what to imitate, but he tells us what not to imitate. And lots of people would like to just stop at the first one. And it's like, what to imitate? That's good. Sacrificial love. I like that. I like, I like that verse. Then he goes on, though, and it gets a little uncomfortable because now Paul gets into a fairly serious warning. 
and he runs through a list of things that might seem somewhat unrelated at first, but are actually very similar. And the reason it gets uncomfortable is because Paul gets specific, he almost gets personal, with some things that Christians can't be doing if they want to be in a relationship with this God of sacrificial love and forgiveness. Things that have no part in our lives if we want to be in relationship with Him. Right? Look at, let's, let's look at them. It's really verses 3 and 4 that he lays them out. Let's, let's kind of run through them. First thing he mentions is, is sexual immorality. Now, when this phrase, sexual immorality, is used in, used in almost all of our modern translations, it's translating the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our word for, for pornography. But it refers much more broadly to any type of sexual activity or behavior that is outside of God's intended design for the expression of sexuality within the context of of a marriage between one man and one woman. Right? That term sexual immorality is that broad. It refers to any type of sexual activity outside of the way God has defined the proper place for it. And so it includes things like adultery. It includes any, any sexual activity outside of marriage. Polygamy. We have more than one wife, more than one husband. It would include sexual activity with someone of the same gender. It would include even lusting, objectifying someone who is not your not your, not your spouse, uh, uh, ascribing to them, even if there's no physical activity, the place of an object from which you get gratification or satisfaction. Right? Anything that we turn, anything that, any other person that we turn into an object for our purpose of pleasure or enjoyment. Now, Paul doesn't expand on all the details here. He does that in other places. He simply uses the phrase, but he says, I want you to be careful not to place that as your object of imitation. Beware of that. He just states it, and he said there should not even be a hint of it. Then he expands on the idea a little, a little further. Not just, not just a hint, even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of any kind of greed. Ah, greed. The insatiable desire for more than what is rightfully yours. A jealous longing for what other people have. This is 10th commandment kind of stuff, right? You shall not covet those things that belong to your neighbor, right? Now, importantly, greed is not always a desire for something that is in itself bad. No, greed is when we take a desire for something that may even be good and we desire it inordinately. We desire it more than we ought to. A desire that oversteps its bounds, out of proportion to our real need for that thing. Now, there are certainly some things that we can desire that are bad, that are wrong, that we shouldn't have. But there's a whole lot of things that are not wrong to desire in and of themselves. But when we place them to the point of ultimate, then they become that idol. They take the place of the one true God who we should, we should imitate. Now, in some cases, the desire is not necessarily just for a thing, but it's for, a, it's for the reputation that someone else might have. Or the emotional hit that you get when you act a certain way or when people treat you a certain way. Or you wish they treated you like someone else is, is treated because then you would feel as if you're somehow special or you're somehow more important. Or you have some kind of peace of mind that you get when you possess a, a certain thing. That's what it's talking about when it talks about greed. Now, verse 4, no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. Filthiness can also be translated obscenity. It means having no regard for standards. Now, presumably, based on the context, it's focused on obscene speech, using words that a, cult, that, that a culture considers to be vulgar or impolite 
just to sort of make yourself sound tough or, or, or to shock other people. That's vulgarity, that's obscenity in, a, in, in, in the sense that Paul's talking about it here. Foolish talk doesn't have anything to do when it calls it foolish, doesn't have anything to do with a lack of intelligence, which is not a sin, but it is a lack of wisdom. It's, it's, it's actually easy to remember this word here for foolish talk because it's, it's from the Greek word morologio, moro. So it's literally the words of a moron. That's what this word means, foolish talk. Crude joking, which is not to say that any kind of humor is bad, even ironic humor or gentle sarcasm. That's not bad, thankfully. Gentle sarcasm is not bad. But it does mean that you shouldn't joke about those things that are serious or sacred. It means that your laughter shouldn't be at the expense of of someone else or that would strike at the sense of security for another person. For example, as a husband and as a parent, I think there is room for good-natured teasing and playful joking with a spouse or, or with your kids. But there are also certain things that I don't think are ever funny. Whenever I've done premarital counseling, I've always said that you should just take certain jokes off the table. Joking about divorce, for example. Don't joke about it. The old ball and chain kind of jokes, don't use those. All right, the whole jokes about how you got this little stash so you can run away to the Bahamas someday and leave your spouse behind. You might think it's just intended to be joking. Just stay away from it. Escape them. Use, get them out of your vocabulary from the very beginning. That's what I tell folks when I do premarital counseling. Now, as a parent, there's certain things, too, that I would say, yeah, gently tease and stuff. It's appropriate at places, and it's part of the fun of a, of a family. But there's certain things you should never joke about. Never joke about abandoning your children. Never joke about leaving them behind or selling them. Even if you think they might understand that you aren't serious. It's not helpful. And more than that... More than that, at least if I know my own heart well enough, those jokes, when they come out, more than often, when they come out, there's something in my heart at that moment that is kind of true about the statement that I'm, that I'm making. And so if you know your own heart, you know that oftentimes in the form of joking, it's really an expression of anger or frustration, just a timid exp- attempt to make yourself look better at the expense of someone else. And that's what makes it inappropriate. All right, that's the list that Paul kind of runs through there. These are the things that should not be present in the life of a God imitator, in the, life of a, in the life of a Christian. But why? Why does Paul say that these things shouldn't be present in the life of, the, in the life of a God imitator? Well, there's a warning and there's an explanation. And the warning is fairly clear in verses 5, 6, and 7. The warning is that for any person who would imitate this type of behavior— you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Then in verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay then, that's a pretty strong warning. Imitate the wrong things and you're, you're, you're marking yourself as someone who has been disinherited. God's wrath comes down on you. Does that seem too strong? Does that seem too harsh? Look a little more carefully at verse 5 and you see a little bit of the explanation for why these things are such a big deal. Paul says, verse 5, that a a person who is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous, in other words, this is describing the summary of what he's been saying, right? A person who is sexually sexually immoral, impure, or covetous, that person is what? An idolater. Now, to the average 21st century person, the response, if someone were to insult you with that word idolater, is like, ooh, you called me an idolater. 
because it's really not a word that's all that impactful to us. I mean, imagine going up to someone in the park. You go for a walk this afternoon. Someone's crossing the other way, and you kind of say, you idolater. What do you think their reaction would be? They might run from you, but not because they're really angry or frustrated, but because they think you're some kind of weirdo. Who would go up to someone and say, you're an idolater? We don't use the word. We don't actually think of it. We don't ascribe much serious meaning to the word culturally, but Paul means it very seriously. It's serious because idolatry is the choice to imitate something other than the God who has shown to you his sacrificial love. It's effectively saying to God that there's something better than him that you would rather imitate instead. Now, remember what imitation is. It's the sincerest form of flattery, which stated differently means imitation is your most accurate reflection of what you really worship. Now, if it's a cute hairstyle or a batting stance, then that's not idolatry, unless your batting stance begins to consume your entire life, which I suppose is possible for some people. But it, it, it may not be something that's wrong, but it definitely means that it's idolatry if you're imitating something that God prohibits. That definitely means at that point that you're switching allegiances. That's why God calls through the Apostle Paul here, those who practice these things, idolaters. Imitating that which God prohibits is, not, is serious, not just because God demands his allegiance. He is just, and he does rightly demand allegiance. But idolatry is a big deal, not because, just simply because God's going to get you, but because that path of following and imitating the wrong things will lead you to destruction because those wrong things that you worship and imitate instead will never be able to do for you what the one true God of the universe who sacrificed himself for you is able to do. In other words, why the warning against the, da- the danger of imitating the wrong things? Why would he warn us about, those, about that, about the consequences of it? Because he loves us. God warns us about the danger of imitating the wrong things, and we warn each other about imitating the wrong things, not because we hate one another, but because we love one another. And that's because the idols of immorality, the idols of greed, they will destroy us because they don't give us what we ultimately want. They ultimately trap us and they ultimately reject us. Not as many people have probably seen the movie today, and it might be a little bit might be a little bit slow, a little bit plodding for modern movie audiences, but there's a scene in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It's best known because it tells the story of the Christian missionary and Olympic athlete Eric Little, who famously refused to run on the Sabbath his race at the Olympics in, in 1924 in Paris. But there's this scene in the film, not with Eric Little, but with his rival, his British rival in racing, his name was Harold Abrahams. And Harold Abrahams is preparing for the big race, the 100-meter race in the 1924 Paris Olympics. And he's lamenting this sense of anxiety, this lack of contentment that he feels and that he has felt his entire life because he has been consumed with winning the 100-meter in the Olympics. And he says, as he's preparing for this race, in one hour's time, I will be out there again on the track. I will raise my eyes and I will look down that corridor, four feet wide and ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. You know what he's saying? He's saying in about an hour, 
I'm going to be out on that track and I'm going to look towards the end and I'm going to look down that corridor that's four feet wide and I've got 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. Here's someone who is about to win. He did win, by the way. The biggest race in the world because the, the winner of the 100 meter is, most, is popularly known as the fastest man in the world. He's about to win that race. And his biggest fear, he says, is not losing, actually. His biggest fear is winning. This is what he says. He says, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. Winning has so consumed him that it has drained all the joy, all the contentment out of his life. And on the brink of victory, he's more afraid of winning than losing. Why? Why would that be so? Because he is afraid. He is deathly afraid of discovering that the success he has idolized will not actually material, materialize in his life. In other words, he's afraid of discovering that the success he will achieve will not justify the soul-consuming worship that he has given to it his entire life. That achieving the idol will not be worth the cost that he has given to the idol. Paul is warning us of the consequences of worshiping and imitating the wrong God. If we devote ourselves to the wrong thing, we will only discover that that wrong thing is completely incapable of giving to us that which we thought it could give. So we've seen what to imitate. We've seen what not to imitate. Now finally, how do we do it? We've already read the text where Paul talks about this, but we don't want to highlight it because it's important. In fact, it's critical. We have to keep coming back to this topic in these sermons this fall about what truly motivates Christian living because it's far too easy for us to misunderstand how this works, how Christian living works. There's two frequent reactions that people have when we're shown or told God's commands to serve Him above other things. Two reactions. On the one hand, we can, we can hear what God's saying and we don't agree with Him. We resent Him for even commanding us to do it in the, in the first place. To that, that he would dare to stop, to tell us to stop doing something that we enjoy. That's one reaction that people can have when, they're in, when they face a, a command of God to follow him. How dare you? How dare you command me to do something that I enjoy doing, or to stop doing something that I enjoy doing? Now, on the other hand, other people, when they encounter a command of, of God like that, they fall into despair because they want to change, but they're stuck. And they don't have the power to do it. And they live in dread of God as they legitimately struggle with their sin. And in both cases, it's a misunderstanding of the motivation that we are given for why we ought to imitate God and a complete misunderstanding of the power that is ours to be able to actually imitate Him. What's the motivation that Paul gives here? What does he say? Well, it's like we've already said, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's Paul saying? He's saying that we should imitate God how? As a beloved child. See, it's very important. Right? Do you get that? He doesn't say imitate God as a hired worker. He says imitate God as a beloved child. Not as someone like an athlete who is measured by their ability to perform in the 10 seconds that they're given to justify their existence. Not like that. 
Don't imitate God like an athlete. Don't imitate God like a hired worker. Imitate God as a beloved child, a dearly loved child. And what he means by this is that a child's status with a loving parent is never in question. A child's status is always love. Then he says that we should imitate God with a constant, conscious understanding that we have a Savior who sacrificed himself for us. The language of a fragrant offering here refers to the, to the, to the animal sacrifices, the, the sacrifices of the Jewish people in the, in the temple. Sacrifices for sin that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would be made by, by Jesus himself. It reminds us that atonement for the sins of those who are God's children is not something that we have to make, but it's something that has already been made for us. That's why we can imitate God as a child who is already loved and not as a hired worker who has to earn his keep. We imitate God as a beloved child because the sacrifice has already been made for us. Now, how does that work to bring comfort? If you're struggling, if you're that person who looks at this command and you struggle with the ongoing sense, sense of sin in your life, how does it bring a sense of contentment to the one who doesn't understand how God might ask them to give up something that they hold dear, that has become even a part of their identity? And God says, give that up. How? Well, to the person who desperately wants to imitate God, who has cried out to him for rescue and has submitted their life to him, but who still struggles with sin in their own life. To that person, Paul says, remember that the starting point for your fight is to remember who you already are. You're a child of the king. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't strategic plans that you can make to, to battle sin, but the starting point of encouragement, particularly if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with an idol in your life that is a real idol, but that you're fighting and that you don't want, in that case, if you feel trapped by it, the starting point is to remember that your fight against that is not a fight as a hired worker. It is a fight as a beloved child. God is on your side. And as a truly loving father, whatever your experience might be in this life with your earthly fathers, as a truly loving father, he will not abandon his children. Now, what about those of you who can't believe that God would ask you to give up something that you might hold is to, to be very important to you and at the very center of your identity and God's telling you it's wrong? Just look again for a moment how verse 2 says that Christ loved us. Paul says Christ loved us by giving up himself as an offering and a sacrifice. You see what Paul's saying here? Our casting off of idols in favor of imitating God requires us to imitate the sacrifice of Christ. Walk in love. It means in this context, not that we have to be nice to everyone. I mean, we should be nice to everyone, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul's saying that walking, we should walk in love, we should be walking in the same way that Christ walked when he sacrificed himself for us. In other words, we walk in the way of the cross. And that means if we walk in the way of the cross, that we will sometimes be asked to take something in our lives that we think is most valuable, something that we may be even sure in our minds that we can't live without it, and we're called to sacrifice it. We walk in the way of the cross. Think about this in the context of God. That which is the most valuable thing in the entire universe, the eternal Son of God, gave himself up for you. And by that measure, then, there is nothing that he could not ask us to surrender 
to which we should feel justified in clinging. Let me say it a different way. Because he sacrificed, because God sacrificed in the person of Jesus, that which is most supremely valuable in the entire universe, because that which is most valuable has already been sacrificed, there is nothing in our life that comes close to even a little bit of the value that he might ask us to sacrifice. None of us would be asked to sacrifice anything as much as we might think it to be valuable, that comes close to the supreme value that has already been sacrificed and laid aside for us on the cross. The most significant thing we surrender is not doing certain things or certain activities or experiencing certain pleasures. The most significant and the difficult thing, most difficult thing we surrender is ourselves. It's our, our autonomy. The right to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. The right to demand an explanation for to demonstrate that he loves us. A few years ago, I read an article by Rachel Gilson. She's a brave woman, grew up in a very difficult home. She was abandoned, she was neglected, abused by her earthly father, disowned, neglected by her earthly mother. Nonetheless, she scratched her way to Yale University. And it was at Yale University, believe it or not, it was at Yale University that she encountered Jesus for the very first time in the pages of the Bible, and in the lives of some friends of hers who were Christians. And she was attracted, as she read about this Jesus, by his sacrificial love. Right? She really liked verse 2. But she was confused and she was offended about his teaching, specifically his teaching about sexuality. She wasn't sure about verse 3 of chapter 5. That's often how a lot of people are. Right? They like verse 2, but they get angry at verse 3. Well, she had friends, Rachel did. She had friends that encouraged her to be angry with God about verse 3. And they tried to argue from the Bible that what the Bible called sexual immorality it was really just a historical misunderstanding. It really didn't mean that when it said that. But funny enough, Rachel, though not a Christian by any means at this time, she, she heard her friend's arguments and she said she didn't find them convincing in any way. She didn't like what the Bible was teaching about sexuality, but she was a, she was a humanities major. She knew how to read books. She knew how, to, she knew how to read texts, and she couldn't deny what the text was actually saying. And she said that confused her. She said, I can't reject it. It is actually what it's saying. And I see this sacrificial love of Jesus, and I can't reconcile the, the two. How could the love and the intimacy and the companionship that she desired here in this world be forbidden by this loving God who seems to be offering the very same kind of love to her that she's longing for? This is what she wrote. She said, I had to learn my first lesson of the Christian life, how to obey before I understood. My whole life had taught me to master a concept before I agreed to it. How could I possibly agree to something that's so costly without grasping the reason? In the end, she said, it came down to trust. I knew Jesus was worthy of my trust because he had made a greater sacrifice. He had left the bliss, the comfort, the joy of loving and being perfectly loved to live a sorrowful life on earth. He took the pain and shame of a criminal's death. He suffered the Father's rejection. All so I could be welcomed who could be more deserving of my trust? What belief do you hold that needs to be sacrificed and die for you to imitate God instead of some other idol? 
The belief that you're owed your definition of pleasure. The belief that you get to define how your body is used. The belief that you get to write the storyline of your life. The belief that you have the right to the last word and get to be right or get to thought to be right in every conversation you have. The belief that you don't have enough and that God isn't going to provide for you and take care of you. Trusting obedience is not an easy thing, but it is possible. And it only comes through a relationship with this God. Rachel Gibson said it like this, the obedience of faith only works when it's rooted in a person, not a rule. Imposed on its own, without a person, a rule invites us to sit in judgment and weigh its reasonableness. But a rule that flows from relationship smooths the way for faithful obedience. God, your loving Father, and your sacrificial Savior calls you to trust Him, to imitate Him, and by that, to enjoy the inheritance of a beloved child. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your loving warnings and Your loving commands. And thank You that You don't call us to live in a way that You haven't first lived and lived it perfectly. A life of purity, a life of goodness, a life of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love shown to us through the work that you did on the cross. Lord, we pray that this is what we would imitate and that we would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.